Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years' experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is part two of Characteristics of a Multiplying Church. Actually, it's Characteristics of a Multiplying Leader, because you don't have a multiplying church if you don't have multiplying leadership. We talked about the one thing that is got to be central to everything that all of us do, and that's to make disciples. And then we talked about seven non-negotiable core pillars. This is all in the last session, but today we're going to talk about 10 negotiable elements, 10 things that you're going to probably do differently from me. I hope that it's valuable to you as it's been to me. As we talk about 10 negotiable priorities for the church, these are issues that all of us have to deal with at one level or another. But many of us are going to disagree with each other, maybe doctrinally, or our church polity, or our culture. It's just going to make us look at things a little different than everybody else. We're going to agree around the one that disciple-making is our task. We're going to agree around the seven that we've just talked about. But these ten are areas where disagreement is probably welcome as we think about it. And The first is a new measure of success. This is really what I'm all about. You're moving from the goal being to be a level three church, addition for addition's sake, growth for growth's sake, whether you're large or whether you're small, that all you're thinking about is how this church can get bigger. And mostly that means we're going to get bigger with people who look a lot like us. And begin to move into an area where we're crossing cultural lines. We're reaching out into different kind of people than we are, or we're reaching into different communities. And frankly, we're reaching a whole lot more people by multiplying and moving off the addition scale to a multiplication scale. My friends in Exponential have come up with this idea of five levels of church. Level one, shrinking. Level two, doing okay and happy about it. Level three, adding, sometimes adding for addition's sake. Level four, starting new churches but doing it as a program of our church. Level five, meaning that we come to a point where we're making disciples who make disciples. Some of them are pastors who make pastors and churches that make churches. And that there's a, a kind of an autonomy that's attached to this where that the people that we send out are free to send others out without asking our permission. And so uh, for, for me, this is, I mean, this is bottom line. This is what I do. But for you, you may be going, no, 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 I don't trust people that much. And I want to have some controls in place that another person might not want to. That's up to you. That's what we're talking about. And that's why these are negotiable things. A second is this idea of liberated financial systems. Most of us are kind of behind the eight ball financially. Money is the monster in almost every room in terms of the church and what it's about and you know what we can do and what we can't do. And yet we come along and the whole idea of this series of teaching that I'm doing is to take the money monster off of our back and get us to the point where we're, the big things that we spend money on are, are seminary education. You know, I have some friends in Japan that to make a pastor, they're going to disciple them, but then they're going to send them to America. They're going to send them to a Bible college, and then they're going to send them to a seminary. 
and they're going to fund his existence the whole time he's there, including his family, and then bring him back to Japan. That's not sustainable. That's not reproducible. We need to get money out of the equation. And so if if we can deal with that we can train in-house, that's negotiable, but that's one way of getting liberated financially. If we can deal with Aquila instead of Paul, instead of thinking bivocational, we're thinking freelance. Here's Aquila, a businessman who hired Paul when Paul needed money. And apparently Aquila was a tent maker all the way through, but he's also a ministry guy. I was just reading Romans chapter 16, and it says to greet Aquila and Priscilla and the church that meets in their house. And just think about it. you got some rich dude with a great big house, and they're holding church in their house. That's a wonderful thing. We can replicate that over and over without threatening the churches that we pastor. You know, this isn't like throw your church over and go do something else. Begin to look inside of your church at the potential that's there. What can I do to raise people up? What do they have in their hand? How can we go forward? And so we're being liberated without the cost of an education, without the cost of a salary, and without the cost of a building in this whole concept of planting micro churches. I want to talk a little bit about what we're calling minimal ecclesiology. The question is, does your church polity enable multiplication, or is your polity a hindrance? Now, as soon as we start talking about this, people start thinking that you're trying to get away with something. You're trying to pull a fast one. You're trying to reduce everything down to where just, you know, anybody can be a pastor, and some goofball in your church that, you know, is really a cult leader in disguise can go out and do whatever he wants to do, and you're just going to let him get away with it. But what this really comes down to is, what is your definition of church? Once you really def- define church, what is a church? What core issues are just non-negotiable? These things are necessary for a church. And what you're going to say is necessary is probably different than what I'm going to say. You know, I have done quite a bit of church planting, and i found that things don't go bad as often as we think they're going to go bad. And so for me, my ecclesiology minimums are, are, are pretty lightweight. I'm going to raise up what somebody would call a layperson to become a pastor. We're going to lay hands on him. We're going to have an elder body behind him, but then we're going to identify him as an elder, and there's going to be an elder body in this very tiny church, and they're going to be able to minister all the sacraments from within their church without our permission. Those things rattle some people, but that's part of my minimal ecclesiology. Somebody asked me, how small can a church be? Well, the Bible says when two or more are gathered together in Jesus' name, he's there in the midst. I think a gathering with Jesus in the midst is probably what you'd call a church. What elements are necessary? Well, I'm looking at Acts chapter 2, 41 to 47. I think the elements that we find in there are, are necessary to the life of the church. One of my friends makes it a little more succinct, and he says there needs to be really good community there needs to be a lifestyle of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of worship, where you're committed to God. There needs to be the Word of God central to everything that's going on. And then there needs to be mission. People have to have a mission that's outside of themselves. The mission can't be building our church. The mission has to be taking our church into the world, into the community. For me, that kind of wraps it up. For you, it's probably something a little different. The main deal here is that you need to figure out what it is, because if you've got a whole lot of gobbledygook, a whole lot of overhang, it may be holding you back from the very people that are in your midst that could go out and plant a new church if you were to want to help them. The fourth issue here is level five leadership within an apostolic atmosphere. What do we mean about that? 
Well, we're thinking about people who just have it in their heart to see the church multiply. A lot of people are pastors, and they're just going to be pastors, and they're going to be happy to be pastors. But if they were to say, I'm just going to build an apostolic atmosphere into what I'm doing, then they could begin to redirect their church toward multiplication. They're not going to go out and start 30 churches, but over a lifetime, maybe two, three, four, five churches are going to get started. And so you begin to think as an apostolic leader, even if you're not apostolic in your gifting. You begin to put things in play that would fit an apostolic atmosphere, even if your church is in some situation where you're not going to go out and light the whole world on fire from wherever you're at. You know, I talked to a guy the other day, and he's in a little tiny town in Idaho. He works 40 hours a week, and actually says that the men in his church respect him because of his job. They wouldn't respect him if he didn't have the job. They've got it in their mind that they're going to start a couple of churches in the next 10 years probably not going to be big churches. They don't have a whole lot of money, but they got it in their heart. And that's really what we're talking about here is that we would begin to exhibit apostolic leadership in an apostolic atmosphere, whether we're gifted that way or not. The fifth principle here is uh, we would have a kingdom-centric, geocentric focus. What do I mean by that? Well, kingdom-centric. It's about the kingdom of God. It's not about me. It's not about my church. It's not about building what we have here. It's about building his kingdom. When I say geocentric, well, I'm thinking about what can I do to get people focused on the world that's out there. You know, I remember when Operation Christmas Child came to Hawaii, and uh, we've always been a missionary church. We've always been a a disciple-making church. We've always been a church multiplication church. And yet here was an opportunity just to get ordinary people to get out of themselves a little bit and do other things. And so we were one of the larger churches in the state of Hawaii at the time, but by far not the largest. We saw in this thing an opportunity to just get people to dig a little bit deeper and to learn to give and to learn to think about other people. And so we challenged our people that we want to do 10% of all the Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes from the whole state of Hawaii. And the first year we didn't make the goal. The, the second year we almost made the goal. The third year we did make the goal. But we had people that, one family went out and did 120 shoeboxes. I, I mean, they, they just made this incredible object lesson for their children by going to Walmart in August when school supplies are on sale and buying things dirt cheap. You know, I found out that for less than $5, you could fill one of those boxes and fill it richly if you caught Walmart on the right sales. But the main deal was that our people were getting engaged with the world out there. As they begin to see the results, the videos are coming back, young kids are coming to know Jesus, they're going through these Bible studies. And then as we progressed in this thing several years down the road, we started to see some of the people that we had invested in actually planting churches in other countries. One time we even saw one of the Operation Christmas Child videos And it had some really unique, very old Christmas wrapping paper that my wife had bought like 30 years ago. She bought this huge roll of wrapping paper and just held on to it. We found it in our attic. We wrapped a bunch of the boxes, and there it shows up in the video. That's the kind of stuff that really lights your fire. And we're trying to get our people thinking not about ourselves, not even about our community, but about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God as it fits into the whole wide world. The sixth thing is everyone a missionary. You know, I'm attending a church right now that's mostly young people. Most of them are surfers. 
though it's pretty easy for us to think about missionaries into the surf world. A friend of mine is trying to start a church among mixed martial arts people. In fact, he's got 55 men in this mixed martial arts studio doing Bible studies together, like in five different groups. And that's the shape of his church right now. Well, I like to tell stories like that in church because as you tell those stories, everybody begins to think, I could do this. I'm in connection with these kind of people. Nobody else in this church can touch them the way that I can touch them. Creativity begins to flow, and this whole Ephesians 2 thing starts to really come into play. But again, you're going to have to define what are you going to let people do. It's a big deal here is permission giving. So often people have it in their heart to do something, and then their church says, well, we got to train you first. Or, you know, I, I've thought of the high school principals and the bankers and the police officers and the college professors and all these people that come to my church and my silly, silly little thought that they can't do ministry without me training them how to do ministry. These are well-educated, professional people who know what the heck they're doing in their life and all they really need from me is permission to be a missionary to those people that they interact with every day. And Number seven is a ascending impulse. A lot of churches struggle with letting people go. And I found that the more that we send, the more that we give, the more that we get. I mean, Jesus said that, and it works. And so it's a negotiable for sure. But how willing are you to let go of people? How willing are you to let go of money? How willing are you to let go of a great investment that you've made in somebody? I can remember the first guy that I ever really discipled. He actually kind of taught me how to make a disciple. I watched him disciple another young man when he was like 16. He's discipling a 14-year-old. And I began to get it that this kid, the 16-year-old, hanging out at my house every night after school, eating all my food, was there because he wanted what I had to give him spiritually. And so I began to focus on him. And it's really what taught me how to be a disciple maker. And then he went away to college. And I can recall the day that he came into my office and just kind of barged in the door and just said, I'm moving to Santa Cruz, bye. And he ran out the door, crying, jumped on his motorcycle and drove away. I never saw him for a year and I was really broken up about that. I mean, this is somebody that I I cared about, good friend, had put a whole lot into him. I was maybe six or seven years older than he was and he was out of my life and And then years later, God brought him back into my life and came in on our staff. And today, pastors of Hope Chapel in Santa Rosa, California. I'm very proud of everything that he's done. But the one thing that I learned along the way was I had to let go. And it was that very, very painful day in that office that sort of stuck me in the heart with this truth that you can bring them so far, but you, if if they're going to do what Jesus has for them to do, you're going to have to let them go. And you're going to have to release them, and you're going to have to release them over to the Lord and to whatever his purpose is for their life. When that boy walked out that door, I never knew if I was going to see him again. And it just broke me up, and I was angry. But I finally came to the point where I was willing to surrender, and that's where we have to get to if we're going to have a sending impulse. The eighth deal here is that everyone gets to play. You know, we always had banners up around our church that said, Everybody Plays. And we would try to find ways of allowing everybody in the church into ministry at one level or another. And when I say that, what really we were talking about is that if there was a job to do, we would break that job into four so that four different people could do it. And the entry threshold was very, very, very low. 
So if you're talking about a class in children's church, you have a hard time recruiting usually. And the frustration is that uh, there's just never enough people who are willing to do this job. Well, what's the job? Well, you got to love on kids. You got to, you know, feed them some food. You got to make some kind of a craft. You got to prepare a lesson. It's just a big pain. And then you probably got recruited because somebody else didn't show up. They put a, a manual in your hand and said, I need you to do this today. You did it that day. You were freaking out. And then suddenly that's your job. We need to get off of that. So what we decided to do in a children's class, church class would be that you've got somebody who brings a lesson. You've got somebody else who brings a craft. You've got somebody else who their job is that there's a little kid that's going through a hard time. Maybe their father beat them up this week or beat their mother and they had to watch the thing. And they come in and they're unruly and they just need somebody to maybe take them off to the side, put their arm around them and talk to them just a little bit. And and then there's the cookie passer outer. And that's the easy job. You don't have to be born again. You don't have to be anything to hand out juice and cookies in a children's church class. And so we find if we never recruit people to be a, a children's church teacher, but we always recruit people to hand out cookies, it's pretty easy to find people. And then over time, they graduate to the next level and to the next level and so on. You get the drift. Moving on, and i got to kind of shorten this thing because I'm talking too long today. This whole idea of a bias to yes. This is almost redundant to one of the things we talked about earlier, but... One of the things that's been most important in my life, I got from a, a very secular book. I, I read a book by a guy named Tom Peters and Bob Waterman called In Search of Excellence years ago. And it's the only book that I've used in disciple making repeated times. And oddly, it's not even a Christian book. But there were eight characteristics of successful businesses that they described in this book. And as I read the book, someone gave it to me when I was between churches. I was on my way from... Southern California where we started out to Hawaii where we were going to live for 35 years and in that summertime I read this book and it's like oh my gosh everything that these totally secular people are talking about from the business world is something that I learned either from reading the Gospels or Acts or the book of Proverbs and one of the things here is just believing in people believing in people and having a bias to yes that when people come to you and they say the Lord brought this to me or the Lord, you know, gave me this thing. I'm basically kind of a cynical person. It's really easy for me just to say no. Or that doesn't fit what we're trying to do right here. Or that doesn't fit our value system. And the the one thing that I learned as a pastor was you just got to say yes a whole lot more than you want to do. You know, when I was a youth pastor, it was pretty easy for me to say no because I was older and they were younger. And if they said something stupid, well, then, you know, it's not going to happen. But then when I became a pastor, there suddenly are people older than me. I was like 25 years old, and there's 40-some-year-old people in the church. And to me, they were incredibly aged. And they came along, and they'd have an idea, and I didn't like the idea at all. But I was timid. I was frightened. I was fearful of confrontation. And so I kind of had a standing deal with the Lord. I'd actually pray about this quite often. And, and that would be, Lord, you're going to have to screen the phonies because I'm afraid to say no. So I'm just going to say yes. And so I kind of started ministry just saying yes to things. And, and you know what I found is a couple things went sideways, but only a couple. Almost everything that people came with was something that I would never have had the creativity to engage. But the Holy Spirit had put it in their heart 
and when I was willing to let it go. So I began to look through the scriptures and, you know, the Bible says the promises of God are yes and amen in, in him and that the Holy Spirit speaks to people. And so I begin to make these assumptions that God's actually talking to people and that he's saying yes and amen and why can't I? And so we went from there and a whole lot of good ministry has come from that. The last thing that I want to talk about that's negotiable is a relationship of some kind to a tribe or a family or a denomination or whatever. I spent most of my life, my childhood, my adult life, in a really wonderful denomination. And then there came time that that just didn't fit for me anymore, and it didn't fit for where we were going, what we were trying to do, and so we moved away from that. And I'm pretty certain that some people just don't understand that and think that I'm some kind of a rebel or whatever. I'm not. I, I have no ill feelings toward those people. I'm just happy that I'm where I am right now in my life. On the other hand, as a movement, the Hope Chapel Churches, because I was in that denomination, we never really took any kind of control or any kind of leadership after they were gone. It was We were in their lives, but it was only relational. And then as it got to be a thousand churches, 1,500 churches, we didn't have any kind of structure in place that allowed us to network with these people in a real positive way that allowed us to keep planting churches and do it very rapidly. And we're very thankful for that. But in a negative way, we really didn't supply something that we should have. We left that to the denomination because we were in the denomination. And then even when we left the denomination, uh, we didn't provide what we could have provided. And so you're going to have to look at this from your vantage point, not from mine. I'm thankful for what I did. I'm not sure I would change anything in my life. But uh, again, I just want to reinforce that the whole deal is about making disciples. There are some core priorities that are non-negotiable. We've got to get these together. We've got to get them right. But then there are these 10 areas where, particularly the ecclesiology deal, we're going to have to figure that out if we're going to make a church multiplication movement. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do. God bless. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmore.net.